I think that all Dharma talks, no matter what the title of the talk is, are variations on a theme of one of three questions. They either address what is it that we're practicing, why is it that we're practicing, or how do we practice. And what I'd like to talk about tonight are the Four Noble Truths, and especially the Eightfold Path, which is the fourth of the Noble Truths. And I love to do this talk because it addresses all three questions. The Four Noble Truths really is the what of this practice. It's really the central and initial and premier teaching of the Buddha. It was the first teaching that he gave after his own enlightenment experience. It's really the cornerstone of Buddhist practice. So it really addresses the what is this practice. And really the first of the, first three of the noble truths are the why of practice. And the fourth is the how of practice. So I get to do all three questions. I think that all spiritual traditions address these universal questions and that the Four Noble Truths is the unique response of the Buddha to the dilemma of human existence. The unique response to the question of how will we resolve the suffering that is most often attendant to the inevitable pain of life. That's the essential question, I think, that all spiritual paths address. If this were um, another talk, there would be more time to talk about the amazing birth of the Buddha or his early life or the way in which he realized this to be the essential dilemma of life and the way in which he set forth to discover the answer to this dilemma the steadfastness of his practice and actually his own realization. What I want to talk particularly is the, the fruits of his realization, what he learned and what he taught as a result of his own practice. What he learned about the truth about suffering and the cause of suffering and the end of suffering and the path to that end. Now when you think about it, the human dilemma is the same now as it was 2,500 years ago. We still have the problem of how to deal with the fact that life is inevitably painful and full of loss and grief. And how will we deal with that? How will we work with that? How will we understand it? We try very hard, I think, as a culture to avoid realizing it. I would tell you some small examples of how I think we avoid realizing it. I read in uh, Newsweek magazine an article about the kinds of ads that various magazines run. And all magazines pick out their advertisements carefully to suit their readership. And uh, Modern Maturity, which is the magazine of the American Association of Retired Persons, has a rule. It will not accept ads for wheelchairs or hearing aids or any advertisement that has the word pain 
inflammation, soreness, and it has a limit of one ad per issue for adult diapers. <laughs> I've seen the ad, you have too probably, it's June Allison on the deck of a cruise ship leaping into the air in a gleeful way and you wonder why if she needs the adult diapers she's leaping into the air, why she is happy. Do you remember the beginning of the film, Annie Hall? There's a Woody Allen voiceover and he's saying, it's telling a joke. It's not so funny. He says about two women sitting on the porch of a hotel and complaining about the food. And one says, the food in this hotel is so terrible. And the other one says, yes it is, and such small portions. <laughs> And then Woody Allen says, that's the way it is with life. It's full of pain and grief and loss and sadness, and it's over all too soon. <laughs> Scott Peck sold hundreds of thousands of copies of the book, The Road Less Traveled, because the very first sentence told the truth. Do you know it? The very first sentence is, life is difficult. I think people were so happy to see that first sentence and so happy to see that he told the truth that they bought the book on the basis of it. He has some other good things to say, but the first sentence is right there. Life is difficult. I think that I really, I really became immediately drawn to this practice having come to my first retreat not because I had any particular facility with the meditative practice, I assure you it was years, more years than I like to remember before I had any facility with the meditative technique, but it was so exciting for me to hear Buddha Dharma. I love to hear people tell the truth. I had never met people who talked so much about suffering and seemed so happy. What it spoke to was the concern that I had because my life was not particularly difficult at that point. I hadn't had grief particularly, certainly not any extreme grief, but it had become clear to me that there was no way out of this life without that, that sooner or later there would be plenty of pain and grief and loss of people I love. Actually, the larger my family got, the more I became aware of the many ways in which my possibilities for pain and sadness were increasing. When I became very interested in spiritual practice, I thought that there were two types of people who did spiritual practice. There were the more philosophical types who wanted to understand life, and I really just wanted to be able to stand life. <laughs> because even when it's wondrous, and it's beautiful, and it's awesome, and it sometimes is, it's always changing, and it doesn't stay. I think that we're always accommodating to loss, or we're trying to accommodate to loss. 
And the tension in the mind, because it's hard for us to accommodate, because we want so much for things to be different, that's really what suffering is. It's not the pain that happens. It's the struggle that we have to deal with it. It's the resistance that we have. We want so much for things to be different. In Est, in the Est training, they used to say, um, the definition of enlightenment was being able to say at any time in one's life, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. It's actually quite an important piece of teaching. All of those examples are somewhat inelegant ways of saying what the Buddha said in the first two noble truths, that life is difficult because there's inevitably pain and sorrow and loss and aging and sickness and death. And that we suffer so much because we want so much for it to be different. We really want it to be different. The word is crave. We really want it to be different. Those are the first two of the noble truths. When I teach this from time to time, when I teach Buddhism in uh, the local uh, Catholic college where I live in California, I find that I'm always a little awkward in the beginning of teaching. I'm teaching normally 18-year-olds. It's a beautiful Catholic college in the midst of an affluent neighborhood. Most of them have had quite supportive families. They haven't. Most of them have tremendous background with privation or difficulty. And here I am introducing Buddhism and starting right away with a discussion of pain and suffering. And I see that their brows knit and they look worried. And I feel like I'm bringing them some sort of bad news. I discover when I teach it to older people, they all nod their head. They all know that life is difficult. But young people, somehow you feel like you're bringing them bad news. So at that point, I usually hurry on to the third noble truth because that's the good news. And I'm happy to tell them that the insight of the Buddha, that the discovery of the Buddha is that the end of suffering is possible, that peace is possible, that pain is inevitable and suffering is optional. We can't eliminate pain from the life. That's part of being in a human body and being in a life. But eliminating the struggle is possible. It's a radical thing that to teach and to know that contentment does not depend on liking how things are. That's really a radical thought. But it's really part of this teaching. Contentment is possible in all circumstances. And it's tremendously exciting to know that. So that's the third of the noble truths. In practicing, the practice that we do is conditioning the mind, conditioning the mind to be able to rest in whatever is. And partly, practice leads to that just through the cultivation of mind states, cultivation of 
certain amount of equanimity, certain amount of joy, certain amount of calm, so that we can be in a more balanced way with our life as events arise. But more profoundly and more primarily, this practice leads to that ability through the arising of insight, through really understanding how things actually are, through really seeing clearly the nature of things. Sometimes we give instructions in a way that I think is a little confusing. We sometimes say words like, uh, allow each breath to arise and pass away, or allowing each experience to arise and pass away. Allowing is a very funny word, as if we have a choice. And we don't. Everything arises and passes away. It's actually not seeing that. It's holding on to things or pushing away from things as if we could that creates suffering. It's a really crucial insight. You know, that particular insight is the very next to the last sentence that the Buddha said before he died. He is said to have said as he was dying, having given his final teaching, he said, transient are all conditioned things or depending on what translation you read, everything that arises passes away. That was a crucial thing to say. The very last thing he said was strive on with diligence. You know, it's not a secret that everything arises and passes away. I haven't just told you something that you didn't know. Everybody knows that. If we ask, if we take a vote here, who here thinks anything is permanent? Everybody will agree. So it's not knowing it on an intellectual way or getting it, thinking about it and thinking that seems true. It's knowing it in some quite intimate way, grokking it as it were, knowing it in some really visceral way. And that's what this practice is meant to do. So now we can talk about the path. That's the what we're doing. And that's why we're doing it. Now we'll talk about the path to the end of suffering. Probably many of you are old students, so you've heard this path a lot before. But I'll remind you of it. I want to tell you that one of the things that I've been thinking about is instead of calling it an eightfold path, about calling it an eightfold hologram. hesitant to do it because it's been an eightfold path for 2,500 years, but I want to tell you that the reason I think that is that I really think that there's no part of the path that is not an entryway to the entire rest of the path and a recreation of the rest of the path. And it's somewhat of an artifact, a heuristic artifact to divide up the practice into eight different ways of looking at them because there isn't any one part of the path that one can do really fully without all of the rest of it being involved. But I'll tell you them separately, as if you could. I'll remind you that the path is really generally divided into three parts. The two parts that have to do with the development of wisdom and the three parts 
that have to do with the development of sila, behavior in the world, morality, and the three parts that have to do with mind training. And I'll talk the most about them because that's what we're doing here. That's what the emphasis is here. And it's interesting, the two parts that have to do with the development of wisdom, depending on where you read the list, are either at the beginning of the list or at the end of the list. And I think that they are both at the beginning and at the end of the list. And I like to think of them that way. Then the list becomes not a linear list, but a circle that comes around and starts all over again. We'll start with them at the beginning. And the first of the eight parts of the Eightfold Path is right understanding. Right understanding means really getting it, understanding that suffering abounds and that it's caused by craving and that the end of suffering is possible and that the path is the way to that end. That's really what right understanding is. And really getting that getting that at least in a little way. Some understanding is necessary even in order to start. Everybody who's here practicing has come because they have some understanding about the fact that life is difficult and that unless we can work with it, there will be lots of suffering. So some amount of right understanding is necessary for entrance into the path. And right understanding, any amount of right understanding, begins to lead to the second part of the path, begins to lead to a desire to end suffering in oneself and in others. And the next path part is right aspiration, right thought, really the desire to end suffering in oneself and in others, which leads to Sometimes right aspiration is called right thought. It has to do with beginning to cultivate those factors that mitigate in that direction, beginning to cultivate non-greed, non-hatred, benevolence towards self and others, immediately upon really understanding the depth of suffering, the immediate response of that is to want to end it in oneself and in others begins to cultivate the sense of benevolence. So you need to have right understanding and right aspiration and right thought to begin. And yet it's at the very end as well, because when we see clearly what the truth is, we see really clearly how impermanence is true. We really see how Suffering exists so much because we haven't gotten it fully, because it's not understood fully. It's really a recommitment to the path of practice. So to whatever degree we deepen our own awareness of the truth, it really deepens our commitment to beginning again, deepens our understanding of suffering, deepens our commitment to right aspiration, right thought. So there really isn't a beginning, it's kind of a circle. It's 
kind of a never-ending circle that really coming to see the truth really opens us to deeper and deeper levels of suffering. It's said that the Buddha gave his teaching for the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, and out of compassion for the world. The second part of the Eightfold Path is usually listed as morality training. Three factors, sila, behavior in the world. They're usually divided, usually divided apart as if behavior of the world is separate from our understanding from, of what's true or separate from mind training practices. But I think as we go along, you begin to see, as I do, that they're all inextricably linked together. The first of the sila practices is right action. We talked about them in the precepts the other night when we committed ourselves to the spirit of harmlessness for this retreat. Right action is committing oneself to the spirit and the life of harmlessness in the world. Not behaving in a way that brings agitation to one's mind. Not behaving in a way that causes pain to others. For a while, I used to think of the rationale for sila practice as being the preparation for mind training practice so that if I wanted to uh, be serene in my meditation practice, it would be wise for me to behave in a way that didn't cause agitation to arise in the mind so that I wouldn't feel guilty or flustered. I see that now somewhat differently. I see that non-harming practice, right action practice, really arises independently of any concern with meditation. Independently, it arises when we begin to appreciate suffering. It arises as a result of right understanding. It's really linked with all the parts of the path. It's not a preparation for anything. It's a practice of its own. If we undertake right action with commitment of spirit, it requires enormous effort, tremendous concentration, total mindfulness. How could we commit ourselves to behaving every moment in a way that's non-harming without paying attention in every moment? Right livelihood is the next part of the path. It seems to me when I think about it that right livelihood was much easier in the time of the Buddha. One wasn't, was enjoined not to sell weapons, not to sell alcohol, not to be a soldier. Right livelihood was easier. We live such complex lives now. And our livelihoods are often entwined with so many kinds of financial concerns and investments. I actually like that. I, I take that as a, um, 
as a challenge to be sure that my IRAs are invested in places that don't support causes that I don't support. I think it's wonderful to make every aspect of our life part of a commitment to pay attention, to be mindful. The third part of the sila part of the path is right speech. And right speech, even though it's a form of action, gets a path part all by itself. I think it should be because speech is such a part of our life. It's like an action that we do more than any other action. Except when we're here, speech is really the principal mode of our relating, and we do it all day long. I like right speech a lot. I have a particular interest, I think, because uh, a lot of my work is as a psychotherapist, and I work a lot with couples who discover how difficult it is to live in relationship without knowing about right speech. So I talk a lot about right speech with people. And I have a little... um, sign in my office that people have borrowed a lot. They take it home, they reprint it, they make huge copies of it on their Macintosh, they put it up on the refrigerator. It's a little quote from the Vinaya where the Buddha is enjoining monks about what they need to do before admonishing anyone. And it says... Before admonishing another, one should reflect thus. In due season will I speak, not out of season. In truth will I speak, not in falsehood. Gently will I speak, not harshly. For his benefit will I speak, not for his loss. And in kindness will I speak, not in anger. I always think to myself that if we reflected all those five reflections, we would do very little admonishing. It's a really important piece of understanding in terms of living in the world where we relate to each other with speech For me, it's always such an exciting thing to think about undertaking, say that, just that one path part as my path. Suppose I undertook to have right speech as my path. I would need such tremendous effort and concentration and mindfulness in every moment of speaking to know that I had been aware of all those five aspects of what I was about to say. So that's the sila part. Those are the second three parts of the path. And that leaves us now with the mind training part. So we talk about right effort, right concentration, and right mindfulness. They're really inextricably linked together. Now I'll talk about, I'll define them for you separately, but I really want to talk about them quite as they're interlinked with each other. This gives me a chance to say something about how this is a balanced practice. It's a practice that balances mindfulness with a certain amount of concentration and how effort is part of that mindfulness and concentration. 
Right effort is defined as the effort to cultivate and maintain mind states that facilitate clarity. (coughs) And to avoid and not cultivate mind states that don't facilitate clarity. In a way, when I think about it, it's really immediately reminiscent to me or familiar to me. Um, seems to me quite a lot like right aspiration, right thought. If I want to realize freedom, if I want to see clearly, then I need to really live in a way that cultivates the kinds of mind states that mitigate in favor of seeing clearly. I want to talk a little bit about effort in ways that perhaps I can give you some specific hints for practice. About making a lot of effort in practice. I am a totally zealous yogi. I love to practice and I practice as impeccably as I can. And part of my practice is to really be forgiving of myself when things haven't gone the way I would have liked. I believe that I can practice, and you can practice, with diligence and with impeccability without demoralizing yourself. I try very hard to not demoralize myself in the following way particularly in the beginning days of practice, just where you are now, if I notice that my mind has wandered, or I've fallen asleep, or I've been quite out of it, I spend no time at all thinking about where I've been and what I've done and how long I've been there. In the moment of realizing that I've drifted off, in the moment that you realize that the mind has wandered or that you've fallen asleep, or that you've been quite involved in cloudiness for a while, in that moment, that very moment of realization, is a moment of real clarity. That's a real moment of alertness. Wow, I wasn't here. In that very moment, you are. One thing that I do for myself, in that moment of, ah, here I am, I notice whether I'm breathing out or in. That's a practice that I do. You probably have heard Sometimes the instruction that the Buddha gave to pay attention to the breath so that you know whether you're waking up on an in-breath or an out-breath or falling asleep on an in-breath or an out-breath. When I wake up from not having been alert, I notice whether it's an in-breath or an out-breath. That's a moment of clarity, and I use it to cultivate another moment of clarity. Remember last night when Joseph was saying about every mind moment conditioning the next. That's another example of mind moments conditioning the next. In the moment of clarity, use it to stay clear, to make a note. This is what's happening. I'm breathing out. That clarity conditions more clarity, conditions more. I'll tell you a mental image that I use because it's one that I've carried with me throughout my whole practice. One of my teachers very early in my practice who said that very same line, every mind moment conditions the next, then said, 
every moment of mindfulness erases a moment of conditioning. And I had the image of a huge blackboard. It was my blackboard. It was all smudged up with chalk, like a blackboard that had been written on a lot. And that every moment in which I was mindful, I was erasing some of the blackboard. And that eventually, if I erased enough, it would become clear. It really spurred me on in my practice. If that's a valuable image for you, then I give it to you. I have another thing to say about effort. Again, about practicing zealously, diligently. Lots of questions came up in interviews today about pain, pain in the body particularly. So I'd like to say something about that because a lot of people are very zealous. I'm happy about that. And uh, sometimes there's some confusion about uh, when can you move and when can you sit in a chair and how much does being a zealous yogi depend on sitting through all sorts of levels of pain. So it's very important to um, to remember uh, the other piece of teaching about mindfulness that Joseph did last night, where he said, awareness is not mindfulness. Mindfulness is really the balanced, calm recognition of what's happening. Knowing what's happening, knowing it intimately, being with it intimately in a calm and clear and focused way. That means when the level of agitation in the body, in the mind, is sufficiently high so that there really isn't calm left in the mind, then what's really left is awareness of discomfort, but not really mindfulness of discomfort. It's just knowing that you're in pain, but it's not really understanding the pain. There isn't a lot of wisdom in there. Perhaps develop steadfastness, But I used to think of this practice a lot as an outward bound experience. I think think maybe that was not such valuable effort. That what's really the valuable effort is to stay alert for what is the level of uncomfortable feeling in the body that you can stay mindful of. And to stay with that, there's a great deal of value in staying with unpleasant sensations as long as you can do that in a relatively calm and focused way, you learn a great deal of truth from that. You learn about how the mind reacts with aversion to unpleasant experiences, how the mind tightens, how aversion feels, how the body feels. Learn a great deal about the workings of the mind and the body, reaction to unpleasantness, It's a great deal of dharma to be learned in staying with unpleasantness. I'll tell you an experiment that you can all do. You learn a lot about suffering and the nature of suffering. Sometime, you've probably all already had this experience, so you've already done this this experiment. The time will happen that some unpleasant feeling in the body arises. Your back hurts, your knee hurts, your neck aches and you're sitting with it and paying attention to it, trying to be mindful of it. 
and the level of agitation is increasing and increasing. Discomfort is increasing and increasing. And finally, you feel like you're going to die if you're going to sit there another minute and wondering when the bell is going to ring. And finally, the bell rings. And all of a sudden, the agony is gone. And you didn't even move yet. You watch that. You see it's true that much of the discomfort is the tension in the mind around how long am I going to have to sit here with this agonizing feeling. It's the alarm about the discomfort, more than the discomfort itself. You know it also because when you sit and some discomfort arises and it's two minutes after you sat down, you have a different feeling about the discomfort is if you know that the bell is going to ring in a minute. It's true. Because the discomfort is just a discomfort. And if actually, if you stay with it in a calm way and pay attention to it closely, you find that it's just made up of component parts and they change all the time. doesn't mean that it gets to be comfortable, but it's not so agonizing, that the agony is extra, that we add it. It's how the mind reacts to what's there. So you learn a lot of dharma from staying with all experience, pleasant and unpleasant. But when the level of unpleasantness and the level of discomfort is enough, so the agitation is really such that there's no calm, there's no mindfulness, there won't be a lot of wisdom, then it really makes sense to move. Move mindfully. Know that you've made that decision. Follow every bit of the moving. Watch the mind adjust to the new posture. Watch the feeling in the mind and in the body as the source of the, as the unpleasant feeling disappears. It's a lot to be learned even in moving if you do it mindfully. Don't feel like you failed. This is not a test in how to sit long. It's a test in how to see clearly. Sit in a chair if you need to from time to time. So those are some things about right effort. Talk about right concentration and right mindfulness. Right concentration is really what we've been practicing for these beginning days, focusing the attention on one particular aspect of experience. We've been focusing particularly on the breathing when we're sitting here and on the walking when we're walking both as ways to develop, deepen the concentration. As concentration deepens, there's a certain amount of focus in the mind and a certain amount of calm in the mind, which then enables us to open the field of attention to all aspects of our experience and to work with right mindfulness. Thinking again of mindfulness as the calm, focused, balanced, intimate knowing of what's happening, as it's happening, of all aspects of our experience. It isn't awareness, as Joseph said last night, which is just knowing that something's happening, but not really being with it in that intimate way. Neither is it I think being totally present, and lots of times we say we'll be totally present in the experience, because I can think of experiences that I'm totally present in. I'm pretty present when I ski. 
I'm paying attention, I'm totally with it, my mind doesn't wander. But there isn't a lot of wisdom in it. I'm not watching it. There isn't that element of investigation. I don't want to know more about it. It's just happening. So so that they, uh, being totally present, or talking about awareness, begins to approach mindfulness. But mindfulness is more than that. It is being present, and it is being aware, but it's doing it with calmness, and with balance, and with intimacy, and with investigation. And mindfulness is really the point of this practice. There's a particular quote from one particular author. It's actually Amadeo Solelaris in a book called Tranquility and Insight. It's my most favorite quote. I think sometimes about if I had to carry around as Pascal did a piece of paper in the lining of my coat that said the most important secret I'd ever discovered, this would be the piece of paper that I would put in the lining of my coat. Here's the quote talking about this practice of mindfulness and why we do it. He says, It is through the mindful observation of what is actually there that the delusion that makes us perceive that which is impermanent and transient as permanent and lasting is gradually dispelled. Liberation consists of experiencing and understanding fully and clearly that everything is impermanent and seeing that there is quite literally nothing to worry about. So I have some more hints about balancing practice, balancing concentration and mindfulness practice. We really develop the breath and the walking practice as ways to develop concentration in these days so that there will be enough calm and enough concentration in the mind over the days to come to be able to open our attention to all aspects of our experience. And throughout the practice, the practice is really like a dance. It's opening the attention to all aspects of our experience and returning to the breath and returning to the walking all the time as ways of reestablishing that foundation of calm and concentration. particularly in these first days of practice, and actually throughout the practice, whenever you've discovered that you've wandered, return in that moment. Just let it go. Don't reflect about where you've been or what you've done. What I say to myself quite often is this breath. Take this step. Then you're right there. Start now. Write this breath, this step. I really want to say some things about mental noting. So I feel very strongly the helpfulness of the technique of mental noting. Mental noting isn't mindfulness, but it's a very big aid in establishing it. In the beginning of my trying to work with it, I used to feel a little silly about it. So I feel like I'm talking to myself. And I thought not only was I doing this peculiar practice, 
but really I've become strange. I'm talking to myself. thing is that saying to oneself what is happening, even if the concentration is not deep enough for true mindfulness to be happening, saying to oneself as one sits, as one walks, and throughout the day, in a very small and soft voice, this is my experience, this is what's happening, this is what's happening, does several very important things. It brings the attention towards the experience so that mindfulness catches up with it. And by and by, in fact, there are moments of true mindfulness. You actually are there with the experience. Not just saying the experience, but you are being the experience. It's a whole difference. Another thing that it does, the technique of mental noting, is it's very helpful because it keeps the mind from going off and telling stories. Because you need to be saying what's happening here. So it's a very important technique in developing concentration. It does help to develop presence. Particularly now, as you've begun to establish the sitting and walking practice, I really want to encourage you to develop the in-between time practice. The eating is as the eating is as important and valid a time to be mindful as sitting or walking, or taking a shower, or getting up from the sitting to go to the walking. There isn't a time out from practice. This is practice. All of experience is practice. And the technique of mental noting is the one way in which it really keeps the practice continuous all the time. So that as you stand up and go out from here to your walking place, to note the intention to stand and standing up and beginning to walk and walking, it isn't to go out to practice. Every moment becomes practice. I really, I really love the eating practice as eating is another aspect of experience and everything that is true is as true about breath as it is about eating. And the eating is, the, for many people, the most comfortable part of the day to practice. It's interesting, it's sensually very gratifying. You pay attention in every moment to the eating. It's also true that successive moments of mindfulness deepen concentration. It isn't only that concentration allows mindfulness to develop, but successive moments of paying attention with clarity to moments of changing experience actually deepens concentration, so they really play back and forth with each other. The more concentration develops, the more calm we are, the more able we are to open to all experience, the more successive moments of mindfulness there are, the more concentration deepens. And they just go back and forth. It's actually easier than you think. I have a sense sometimes that particularly people with sincerity and with diligence have the sense that this needs to be a struggle. This isn't an unnatural thing to do. It's actually simpler than we make it. Perhaps it's not so easy, but it is simple. Just take this breath, take this step, do what's happening, pay attention, and look at it carefully. That's the whole instruction.
So that's the whole path. I'll tell you what seemed to me just some paradoxes of calling it a path. First of all, it doesn't seem to me to be linear. Usually when you think of a path, like a path from here to there, you do one step of the path before you do the next step of the path. In this one, you do all the steps of the path together. Not only do you do all the steps of the path together, but I think that you can't do any of the steps of the path without all of the other ones being inevitably involved. So it's a path with eight steps where you do all the steps together all the time. I think it's non-hierarchical too. It isn't like leading up to something. Don't think that any particular grouping of the path is the end of the path. It isn't that we do sila practice to develop the samadhi practice to develop understanding and wisdom so we're finished because it's wisdom that really inspires us to rededicate ourselves to right aspiration and to the dedication to end suffering ourselves and others. So there's no really beginning or end to the path. Also it's a paradox to think about a path that doesn't go any place but here. Usually you think about a path that starts somewhere and goes someplace. And this is a really a path that leads here. That when you think about it, it seems to me sometimes paradoxical that uh, the fruits of practice are actually the instructions for practice. If you think about it, normally when we speak about it, we talk about doing this practice so that insights will arise so that the fruits of insight will arise among them calm and joy and energy and fearlessness and equanimity and a mind that's relaxed and alert and then if you think of the instructions for this practice especially as we open the instructions more and more to include all aspects of experience we'll give the instructions as Meet each moment with a mind that's relaxed and alert. So the instructions for the practice are actually the fruits of the insight of this practice. In fact, there's a way of seeing that in any moment in which we're truly mindful, in which there's no clinging and no pushing away, in which we're truly alert, relaxed and alert and open and resting in that moment, that every moment of true mindfulness is really a moment of freedom. And when you think about it, all we have is moments. There's a new book um, by Ajahn Sumedho, who's a... wonderful teacher in this tradition. And the poem with which he starts the book is, Yesterday is a memory. Tomorrow is an unknown. Now is the knowing. Let's sit a little bit.
This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 3, 1991. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can